Really special, isn't it? Anticipating the coming of our pastor-elect. Near unanimous vote just two weeks ago, and we've been without a pastor, but wonderfully shepherded by our elders and by our deacons and just by members and friends of this congregation. As God has worked through and among us, it's been a very special time, a hard time, a growing time, a journey. And that journey is soon coming to a conclusion, but not really a conclusion. It's just the inauguration of a new epoch for CCC, Christ Community Church. What lies ahead? We don't know. As a congregation, we know God knows. You have some things perhaps in your life you brought with you this morning, perhaps some baggage, something that... Uh, isn't right in your heart and you know it and you need the Lord to help you with that. Or maybe it's a relationship or perhaps it's just a heartache or a grief that you bear. Or maybe a physical condition, medical uh, ailment that you are struggling with and perhaps no one knows because you haven't shared it with anyone. I don't know what it is you come with today. Maybe your heart's just bubbling over because you've had some wonderful news. A young couple that's just been engaged in their hearts, filled with dreams and an eager anticipation. Perhaps you've come with the expectation of being enrolled soon in a, in a university course that you just have looked forward to. Maybe your heart's filled with that as you come today. I don't know. I don't know what's in your heart. God does. He knows what's in each one of our hearts. He knows What's in the rumble in my amplifier? <laughs> God knows. He knows it all. I'd like for us to turn to a passage where the Apostle Paul wrestles with some of the issues, and it all relates to our prayer life. I've been asked to speak the first two Sundays of August on Thanksgiving. You know, we're thankful for what God has brought us through, and you know, this is an Ebenezer, a stone of help. Hitherto has the Lord brought us, said Samuel, after a wonderful freeing victory over the invading Philistine armies. And we have an Ebenezer. But we also have our own journeys. Paul was facing that. Before we read first, or read Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, which is in your bulletins, but please follow along in the translation you may have brought at hand uh, in your own Bibles. Paul's writing from prison to people very dear to him. He planted that congregation right after being beaten and imprisoned unlawfully as a Roman citizen in Philippi, which was a Roman free city. It had been that way because Caesar Augustus proclaimed it so because there he had had his great victory over Cassius and Brutus and other senators who had assassinated Augustus's uncle, Julius Caesar. And in the aftermath of that, there were other battles, but the result ultimately was that Caesar, Augustus, Octavian, became emperor in place of his uncle Julius Caesar who had been dictator for life. And he'd made Philippi where that battle, first battle had taken place, he made it a free city. Many of you were born there 
You were a citizen. It meant you, unlike people who are just traveling through from other provinces in the empire, you had special privileges. They might be imprisoned and flogged in order to extract from them a confession, but you weren't. You were a Roman citizen, and that meant something. This traveler, Paul, and his companion, Silas, were taken for having done a good deed. That's another story in another sermon. And they were flogged and imprisoned without trial. In the middle of the night, bleeding and wounded, they hadn't been treated, in the stocks, in the dark dampness of a dungeon cell, what were they doing? Moaning, oh, poor me. They weren't either. They were singing songs of praise and thanksgiving to their God. Paul, are you insane? Don't you see the reality of where you are? What do you think? This is virtual reality or something? No. He knows his God is present, has a purpose, and has not abandoned him. And he's singing. I think there was a jailer who was well aware of that. Probably couldn't help but listen to it. His job was to listen up for any sounds of attempted escape. Because if anybody tried to escape, it was his life theirs. There's an earthquake, a big earthquake. The doors are flung open. All the locks are shattered. The shackles fall off the prisoner's arms and legs. No earthquake, ordinary earthquake ever does that, friends. It's more than an earthquake. There's an earthquake, of course, the Bible says so. It's more than just an earthquake. Paul and Silas are free. They're still in the jail cell. They're still under a a, a sentence without trial. The jailer rushes in and he sees that all the doors are open. And he makes the immediate assumption there's been a jailbreak. I'm doomed. And rather than have the disgrace fall on his family, I'm sure, as well as himself, he draws his sword and is prepared to commit Roman suicide. Seeing that, Paul calls out. He sees them in the doorway and he says, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Can you imagine? I can think, I, if I were one of the other prisoners, you know, not a believer, I might have said, speak for yourself. I'm getting out of here. But no, no, we're all here. <laughs> and, uh, and he rushes in, falls at the feet of Paul, and he says something cryptic. He says it one way, And Paul knows he needs to say it in another way and answers that. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, the immediate context is to get out of the predicament, but he also had a heart with a hole in it. Paul knew that. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Always in the Old Testament, the covenant God deals with his people, not only individually, but as by households. It's not mechanistic. doesn't mean if you're a believer, automatically everybody else, like it or not, is going to be in heaven too. 
doesn't mean that at all, but it does mean God works through families in a special way. So that jailer, who is not a wealthy man, by the way, he's not the prison warden you know, the big penitentiary, big shot, no, no, no. He and his whole family were baptized in the prison. Roman prisons have been dug up. They don't have big wells. They have small water basins, uh, provisions where there's a, a bit of a fountain or something, and um, they weren't Roman baths. So the mode of the baptism there seems to have not been by immersion, I'm sorry. But, but he was baptized, he and his household. And notice his household three times, five times in the, in the New Testament. Be- people believe and are baptized with their households. Or it's said that their whole households come to faith. Households. Do they include little children? Sure they do. They were baptized. They were made part of a covenant community, but hold on, there wasn't a covenant community. Just them. Well, yes, there was. He had previously gone down to the riverside. Why did he gone there? Because he usually would go to a synagogue. There wasn't one, apparently, in Philippi. So it goes down to the riverbank where at the riverside prayer is often made by people who are God-fearers or God-seekers, and there was one businesswoman there. No mention of her having a husband. She's either single or a widow, in all probability, and she's there. And Paul and Silas have preached the gospel. What happens? She believes. God, oh, God opens her heart. And she says, please come into my home. And it's from that household, that home, that is an operating base. And what does Paul do? <laughs> he goes out preaching the gospel, gets himself into this predicament of being accused for something that wasn't bad. And then he's t- tossed in prison. We've just told that story. Now you have an infant church. Let me tell you something else we know about that infant church. We know from this epistle later on that they were pretty poor. And we know from an epistle that Paul writes also to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians that this church was poor. Say, Lydia seemed to be well off, this businesswoman. Yes, she was probably the only one that was. And they had a lot of needs. You know what they did? They begged Paul when he left there. He was asked to leave by the city fathers. He didn't have to, but in order not to make trouble, he did when they apologized so that Christians wouldn't have to live under a stigma. That's why he wanted the apology. It wasn't his ego. And he left there a little church, a fledgling church. And they didn't have much, but they begged him to let him send with him and from time to time send somebody with some material help, some money or provisions to help him on his way time and again. The only church that did, Paul later says, for that period of time. As he goes to Berea and Thessalonica and to... to, uh, Later to Athens and to Corinth, further south in the Greek peninsula. This is that church. They would send money 
to relieve the saints and in uh, who were in trouble in, in Judea, were going through a time of famine. Paul would commend them. Here's Paul writing to these people he loves. He loves them. And he says these words. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to think further on these words from you through your servant, the Apostle Paul, would your spirit open our hearts to understand what you have to say to us individually and as a congregation of your people here at Christ Community. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that gives you elation, joy, that really lightens, brightens your day? Does it do so even when your circumstances are hard or maybe difficult? You think back on that and say, yeah, but this is good. Still have that. It's worth it. It's wonderful. I think of, of a young mother recovering from the ordeal of childbirth. and It's okay. She has her beautiful baby infant. And she's, she's, her heart's filled with the appreciation and joy, even though it's hard recovering. From childbirth. We all face difficult times in our lives of different kinds. Living in a spiritual community is God's way to help us see his activity both in us and through us. I'm uh, reminded of a, of a fictional illustration that I heard in a, a sermon in Korea. pastor was talking about uh, another pastor who went up to Prayer Mountain. Now, you need to understand that in Korea, they have a, uh, a tradition or a practice of uh, Christians, not just pastors, from time to time going for a retreat, a prayer retreat up into a mountain. And, and they call that a prayer mountain. And uh, they'll go and they'll stay for a day. And they may stay for 40 days and fast. Uh, it's a hard thing to do. A couple of them have, that I've known have managed to do that. Um, but, but here was a pastor, and he was up for several days in Prayer Mountain praying, and, um, and the weather got really inclement, and so he, he turned aside into, on the mountain into a cave. And there in the cave, you know, it's dark, you can't see anything He's, at first, because his eyes aren't adjusted to the darkness. He's praying. He's praying and praying and thankful that he can be there and so on. But, but he's, he's asking for things. He's asking for his church. He's asking for his family. He's asking for himself. And, and as I, he begins to hear a, a sound behind him deeper in the cave, sounds like a rumbling, a growl. And his eyes become a little more adjusted to the darkness. He turns and sees there's a bear, a large 
and hungry bear that has been disturbed in the midst of its hibernation. It stands on its hind legs and its claws and fangs glisten in the little bit of light that gets into the cave, you know, and, and the pastor is absolutely petrified, can't move with fear, you know. And he drops to his knees and he cries out, Oh God, deliver me from this bear. To his amazement, the bear dropped to his knees, raised his paws and said, God, for this meal you have provided, please receive my thanks. And the Korean pastor asked his chuckling congregation, whose prayer did God hear? <laughs> and then he laughed and he said, and remember, this is fictional. He says, of course, he heard the bear's prayer, because God loves thanksgiving. The offerings of God, sacrifices of God, are those of praise and thanksgiving. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a heavenly Father who cares about our needs. Jesus says we do, but we often forget that the main part of prayer is thanksgiving. Paul and Silas weren't in the middle of the night crying out, oh, 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 God, deliver us. And they could have. I probably would have. But that's not what Paul and Silas were doing. They were saying, Lord, you are good. In the midst of the hard times, you haven't changed. In the text before us today, we learn that God's work in and through his people is cause for profound thanksgiving. And that, you see, energizes our prayer. It gives us the motive, the focus, and the confidence of our prayer, individually and corporately. And I'd like for us to think of each of these briefly in turn. First, the motive of our prayer. Gratitude to God constitutes a foundational motive of prayer. Verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God. He's talking about communion. Communion, communication with almighty, everlasting God. And he's thankful that God is a God who hears prayer. Do you know, you remember what Jesus said when he was at the tomb of Lazarus? The first thing Jesus does when he comes to the tomb, he says, Please raise Lazarus from the dead. No, no, that's not what he says. He knows he's about to do that. What does Jesus say? He says, I thank you, Father, that you have heard me. I know that you always heard me, but I said this for the benefit of those who are listening, Jesus explains. First thing he says, I thank you that you have heard me. You're not talking into space, believer. You have a God who is there and is not silent. He hears the prayers of his people. That's profound. Notice that our thanksgiving is prompted by delight in what God has done. Verse joy, or verse 4, with joy, says Paul. With joy. G.F. Hawthorne has remarked, for Paul, joy is more than a mood or an emotion. Do you hear that? Joy is more, he says, than a mood or an emotion. 
Joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation and depression, that can accept with submission events that bring delight or dismay, because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. But also notice that our constancy in prayer is engendered by remembrance of God's goodness to and through other believers. See, we're united to each other. Verse 3, Paul says, every time I remember you. Verse 4, in all my prayers. There's a connection. And what God has done in and through our lives and what God is doing in and through others' lives are both causes for gratitude if we will but reflect upon them. I know that's what, God, what Paul was doing as he was in the stocks at midnight praising God with a, with a <clears throat> lacerated back from the flogging he had unlawfully received. Some years ago, I was a young Navy lieutenant teaching at the Naval Academy before I'd gone to seminary and after an evening service, I was speaking with my pastor uh, at his home, and uh, into the evening we were talking. He also happened to be my father-in-law. My, my wife and son were back at, at our uh, quarters at the Naval Academy, and they retired a bit earlier, and, and I had uh, our family car. I'd taken them home and come back and was talking. It was a little sob, a green sob, our first car. We still had it, and I... Uh, it was front-wheel drive. It was great for driving on ice and snow. At least it was built that way. Very safe little vehicle. Well, it had snowed two days before pretty badly, and the, uh, the roads had been really icy, you know, and slick. But it had been sunny since then, and the roads had melted off. They were really clear, and so I didn't anticipate any problem. Now it was evening. It was night, and the temperature had dropped. <laughs> And I went from that house down Bay Ridge Road, my wife will remember it, and uh, Severn Ridge Road, rather, and I, I was going down to the Ritchie Highway, but it had this, uh, this switchback on it, down a cliff to the highway below. And I was going along, my heart was filled with, with uh, the thrill of talking about our Lord and what I'd learned that day, and and for the wisdom that God had given my father-in-law, who really discipled me. And, uh, and I was going down the road and suddenly hit this ice. You see, it hadn't melted because in that switchback, it had been shaded by trees and the sun hadn't got to it. And now it was really cold because it's night and it is slick as glass. And I start to go around that switchback and uh, turn the wheel. The car didn't turn. <laughs> kept sliding. hit the brakes. The car didn't slow it kept sliding brakes are all the way down wheels fully turning keeps just sliding you say that's not how you drive on ice and snow listen when you're on a hill <laughs> and the road doesn't go straight and there's not a lot you can do right over the side now i was singing the doxology as that happened praise god from whom all blessings flow right down the side of that hill, hit a tree only a few feet down, wrecked the car, I was fine. Knees knocking, I get out of that car, and this young Navy lieutenant tries to get his way up that icy hill. I slipped and slide, and then made it, the 
0.0 mile, mile and a half was it to um, my father-in-law's home and walked in the door. He looked up, he was surprised. He said, oh, what are you doing back here? Did you forget something? And I said, no. And I explained about the accident and the car going off the road. And I said, I was right in the middle of singing the doxology. How could God let that happen? I guess was what I was thinking. Uh, I'll never forget what my father-in-law's response was. Very serious expression on his face. He said, well, did you finish it? I thought, what kind of a question is that? I went off the road. What do you mean did I finish it? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, he's right. He's absolutely right. I could have had my family, my wife and little infant son in that car. Something could have happened to them. For, to me, they could have been a widow and orphan. God took care of us. God was there. So why didn't I finish it? See, we need to learn that God's work in and through us and others is cause for our continued praise to him. It keeps the engine of our prayer going. Besides the motive, gratitude also provides focus for our prayer. Concerted partnership in sharing God's good news in Christ is a continuing focus of our prayer. Verse 5, your partnership in the gospel. The word Paul uses there is, of course, koinonia. We think, oh yeah, we know that. That's fellowship. Oh, it's more than fellowship. Yes, it's fellowship. It's also the word for communion. It's also the word used in the New Testament for an offering, take it up, and taken from churches that are new believers and carried to uh, persecuted Jewish believers back in the, uh, in the region of Judea, Jerusalem. It's all koinonia. In Kiswahili, there's a word um, in East Africa, harambe, and it means... Everybody pull together. Everybody do what you can. You may only be able to do a little. You may be able to do a lot. But together, together, we'll get this done. Harambe. Well, harambe is not the equivalent of koinonia, but it gets part of it. It does. It gives part of it. Your fellowship, says Paul, in the gospel. Again, uh, one a scholar has written this. In its fullest extent, koinonia means wholehearted, active participation in every imaginable way with Paul in the labor and suffering, labor and suffering, that was necessary to spread the good news. Hmm. Partnership, everything necessary in, to do the labor and suffering of sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But, you know, you can't participate in that partnership until you've experienced it. To experience it, you need to understand what it is. It's not religion. It's a Latin word, religio. It's not a bad word, but that's really not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not just a religion. It's not a bad word, but it's, it doesn't capture it. It just means rituals that you do with sacred meaning to the Romans. Christianity is not about rituals we do with sacred meaning. Christianity is about a relationship with God through his son that we who had no hope of being reconciled with an absolutely holy and just God 
have been made right with him because he sent his only son, pure and innocent, to live in a sin-struck world that we have to live in, yet never sullied by his own personal sin. He lived absolutely with innocence and sinlessness. And having done what was righteous in God's eyes that none of us could live and do, he willingly goes to the cross, the most shameful form of prolonged execution that the Roman Empire had devised to make an example of criminals. And he willingly goes there, spreads out his hands, and goes through the agony of crucifixion death. Oh, but listen. That's not the worst of it. It's not the worst of it. It's not the nails as they tore his wrists and his feet in the place of his people if you're his child for you. That's not the worst of it. The worst of it was the three darkest hours when it was night at noon on Golgotha, place of the skull, Calvary, we call it. And there, God the Father turned his back, as it were, on the human nature of the person of God the Son. Trinity's not busted, no. But the person of the Son in his union of his divine nature with his human nature, that human nature experiences absolute separation from God. And do you know what? That is really what the essence of hell is is Jesus bore hell for you if you believe in him, if you're his child. And if you are not now a believer, God says to you, come, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. God says, I invite you to be a son or a daughter in my family, adopted in Jesus through repentance and faith in Jesus and acknowledgement of his lordship in your life. Come empty-handed. You can't add to it. You can't have church membership as a part of how you're saved. That doesn't save you. It's important in its way, certainly. It doesn't save. Your baptism doesn't save you. What saves you is what that water baptism stands for. The baptism that the Holy Spirit does in the heart, transforming a heart, a dead heart of stone, into a living, beating heart that throbs in resonance with God's heart and now repents and believes. That's what it means when the Bible says in Acts that God opened Lydia's heart. Is he opening your heart? Is he prompting you to come to him, perhaps to speak with the prayer team and, and pray with them after the service? Coming forward doesn't save a soul. Coming to Jesus will. That's the gospel. We have no partnership, Christ community, if we don't start there. And if that's our message, it spills over into all of life so that we care about physical needs of people. 
And that's why we have these opportunities there in your bulletin that have been mentioned in the announcements. Because we too want to say, see what Christ says, what Christ is, what he does. To give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, as Paul Wagner has so eloquently reminded us. Very convicting for me. It's true. Gospel partnership begins with the gospel, but it's also persevering. Verse 5, Paul says, from the first day until now, it's something that doesn't just quit. It doesn't quit. And it's united, that partnership. Verse 4, for all of you, says Paul, note all the alls in this section, at all times, and all of you, as well as for all of you, the universality of the believer's experience is connected with that of everyone else in the one body of Christ. And so look, skip down a little ahead to what Paul's going to say a few verses later toward the end of the chapter in verse 27, if you have your Bibles open. If not, listen. He says, whatever happens, he's talking about his own imprisonment and their um, their suffering, and we'll say more about their suffering in a moment. But he says here, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Another way to say that is shoulder to shoulder. That would be the Hebrew way of saying it. Serving the Lord shoulder to shoulder. A defeated army seldom feels jubilant over a few individual skirmishes that it may have won. In, in the midst of their collective defeat of the greater battle or war. A basketball star recently was congratulated on his outstanding personal performance, uh, albeit in a losing result in the NBA playoffs. And he responded something like this. I don't have the exact quote, but the, but the thrust of his comments were this. We're a team. He says, we didn't win. Whatever my personal statistics were don't really matter. We're a team and we win together or we lose together. Hmm. Do you ever think that we need to see our personal spiritual struggles within the context of our belonging to Christ and therefore to one another in his global church? Our sacrifices are in pursuit of a shared purpose and goal Trinitarian worship and missional service. Transforming hearts, lives, and community as we do so. And that brings us finally to our confidence. God's own faithfulness is what gives us assurance in prayer. Verse 6, being confident. Now, I don't need to parse the verb, but let me just say it's the form of, of, of the language, uh, the original language, the verb, that the perfect tense, if you want to know, but that, that has to do with something that's completed in the past, but has ongoing repercussions. The condition continues. 
For example, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul would write. I am crucified with Christ is the way the King James translates it. <laughs> Do you hear it? Something that happened and it's still true. Ongoing um, repercussions, reverberations, a condition that follows through. Being confident, says Paul. I have been confident. I am confident. I shall be confident. Why? Because God sovereignly completes what he began. Verse 6, he who began. He who began. The focus is on God. He began. What? A good work in you. What's the good work? It's the gospel that transforms you. It's the gospel that through you transforms others that he intends to bring to himself. Uh, he will, Paul says, carry it on to completion. His work of, of bringing the gospel to completion, both within the believers and especially here through the believers. Christ's community, God is concerned to transform your individual lives, and he's concerned to transform our corporate, congregational life and our community through our presence here. See, God's ultimate goal is consummated in Christ's coming again. Verse 6, until the day of Christ Jesus. And he says that same thing several times in the epistles, but even in this chapter, in this very first chapter, verse 10, he speaks about until the day of Christ. <clears throat> Imagine yourself as a marathon runner. I always wanted to run a marathon. I guess I've shared that before. I got up to where I was doing more than a half marathon, did two weekends in a row, and did three 10-milers in between. I thought I was just about on the verge of it, and then uh, the roof fell in. I was never able, as it were, never able to finish that marathon. Never have, probably never will now. The old ticker's not willing, the mind is. But, 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 can you imagine if I'd finally gotten to do that? Some of you have run marathons and know what I'm talking about. Uh, but can you imagine that you're on the final mile, half mile of 26.2, you know, and, and there it is, you see the finish line, and you're pushing just a little more. You're not going to quit now. A little more, and then you notice that you're not any closer than you were before, and you realize that a hideous joke is being played on the marathon racers. The finish line is on coasters and the officials are moving it ahead of you. You're never going to finish. There was a takeoff on The Wizard of Oz that was an African-American version, at least tried to be, and it was called The Wiz way back in the 70s. And on it, there's a person on, the, on a merry-go-round tied to it, and he was singing plaintively, you can't win and you can't stop playing the game. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But it's not true. It says, now is Christ risen from the dead. There is a day coming. There is a reward there is a finish line until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking primarily about the return of the Lord, but he's also talking about Christ's return for each of us if he comes for us individually. 
before he comes at the close of the age to wrap up history. Our lives have a consummation. They have a destination. For a believer, it ends not with a whimper, but with a triumphant trumpet fanfare and the entrance into the gates of the celestial city and the smile and the voice of Messiah himself who welcomes with open arms and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll make you ruler over much. Come into the, enter into the joy of your Lord. You know what? My immediate thoughts when I read those words of Jesus, but I'm not worthy. How can I say I've been faithful over many little things? I haven't even been faithful over that often. I've done what Paul confessed to. You know, I've done a good deed and felt good about it and then realized, wait a minute, who got the honor for that? Why wasn't I thinking about that? No, those things happen to me too. They come in. And some of that is good, the conviction. Paul's right. We leave that at the cross. We have been forgiven. We learn the lesson. We don't just start over blank slate. We learn from those things. But the point is, we come into Christ's presence at the end of our days, the day of Christ. And we expect from here, from this perspective, that perhaps Jesus might say, well, you know, I'd give you a C minus. Enter into a, the vestibule of your Lord. <laughs> and I'd wonder if I'd even make the walkway <laughs> up to the door. <laughs> and if I'm honest. And God says, Christ Jesus says, our Savior, God the Son, says, no. He says, well done. How can he say well done? Listen, here's how. Because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's how. Not I, but Christ works in me. Here's how. In the second chapter of this epistle, Paul will say, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling for, hold on, it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We have a confidence. There is a finish line. And it's what God has done is doing and will yet do for us. Not what we do for him. What he does for, in, and through us. To him be the glory. That's what matters. I uh, remember Paul's writings to, to Titus where he says, he says, looking forward to that blessed hope, our gl the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a confident hope, well worth the cost of the journey. It gives us hearts of united, joyful gratitude in Trinitarian worship and in missional service to our King. We've considered the motive, the focus, and the confidence this morning of our prayer life. Together, they underscore the truth that God's work in and through his people, ourselves and one another, is cause for profound thanksgiving. And it's that thanksgiving that is the launch pad for our prayer life. That's God's promise to you, believer. It's also God's promise to us, Christ community. Let's pray.